Hello and welcome to New Tricks, the weekly podcast from New Dog PR. I'm Emily Newman. And I'm Catherine Doggle. This podcast is a chance to mull over the current goings on in hotel land, chat to some pleasant folk about things they know and provide some interest for your ears. We've brought our journalism and communication experience together with our sector knowledge and contacts to create a strategic PR company which understands investing in hotels and the many roles within them. This week on New Tricks, we're joined by Will Laxton, CEO of McTaggart Family and Partners, where we discuss the quarter of reckoning, biscuits as sources of power, and why a weekend PS could make you a big target. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Tricks, which is the podcast from New Dog PR. That is us. So today we have Catherine from Paris. How are you, Catherine from Paris? I'm very good. How are you, Emily from Bristol? Um, how are we? Well, it's Monday, so it, it, that knocks it down a couple of points. And there's also a blocked toilet, broken washing machine situation to sort of lob into the Monday joy. But apart from that, every day above ground is a bonus, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's not very fair for people who drive tube trains now. No, that's it? true. That's very true. I take it all back. Um, and our guest this week, we are delighted to have with us um, Will Laxton, who is the CEO of McTaggart Family and Partners. Will, thank you for joining us. How are you? I am very well and very happy to be here. Excellent. Any plumbing issues that you need to share with the group this morning? Is everything, I mean, yeah, washing machines? <laughs> None that I'm aware of, but um, I, I'm in the office, um, very much enjoying the safe haven. So um, there may be maybe floods of terror uh, at home. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> the, the return to work is vibrant and fully alive for everyone. Um, we'll come on to deep matters of biscuits of choice um, and perhaps a smattering of why hotels are such a jolly thing to invest in at a later stage. Um, but before we get to that point, can you give us a little overview of um, who McTaggart Family and Partners are and your kind of role within it, please? Gladly, yes. Um, so McTaggart Family and Partners is... Um, what we call a co-investment management platform, which makes it sound extremely grand um, and in a way it isn't. It's actually um, a business that uh, takes the the capital of the McTaggart family, who are are, are good, solid, fair, uh, reasonable people, um, and we bring in um, capital from other families um, that we know, that we like, and that we trust, and hopefully the feeling is, is reciprocal. Um, and we invest in real estate projects on a deal-by-deal basis um, and try and make everyone involved some money. Um, and I um, am the CEO of that platform, um, uh, undertaking those transactions and, and also managing real estate assets that the McTaggart's own um, in their own right, 100%. Um, so we, we get up to all sorts of things. We, we uh, develop offices in the UK and in Manhattan, um, we have lots of residential assets, particularly in, in North America, um, and we are very pleased to have an owner-operated hotel platform in the UK called Resident Hotels. Which is very charming indeed, and we, we are familiar with, I believe. I have a feeling that isn't a coincidence, but uh, <laughs> I'm pleased all the same to have it confirmed. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, so when, when you're not investing in hotels and offices, um, what biscuits do you enjoy? Um, well, I well maybe while maybe while you're investing in them, 
because we we talk we talk we talk a lot about biscuits, obviously, um, but that but not in terms of you know where they may help you in the decision making process. And yeah, I mean the great the great thing from from my perspective about real estate investing is it's very slow, and that does create lots of time for, for biscuit eating and and even dunking. Um, my favourite biscuit is a custard cream, um, mm. but I have a particularly weird reason for for liking it so much um and i probably shouldn't say this but um when i was about 12 i think i must have been i was a biscuit monitor um at my school congratulations um, this was thank you thank you it's uh, it's actually still bullet point one on my cv i should hope so um with this role came great power um, and what I used to do, I used to abuse that power almost immediately Obviously. once it was given to me as, a, as an evil Machiavellian 12-year-old. Um, I used to trade biscuits for, for things that I valued more highly than biscuits. What things could they possibly be? <laughs> I know, I know. This it's, it seems almost sacrilegious to, to suppose that that might be a, a, a concept. But um, do you remember Push Pops? Yes. Yeah, mm. they, I, I used to, you know, two, three custard creams for a push pop. Nice. Um, and also... Um, Those were the things that were just an entire block of concentrated sugar, weren't they? Yes, yeah. yeah. Encased in plastic. They looked a bit like a highlighter pen, so you could sort yeah, of yeah. have them in your jacket at school and mm. look studious. Um, mm. But the best thing was um, we used to trade them for Euro 96 football figurines, do you remember those? Mm. How many I mean, custard creams, though? How many custard creams for a year '96 figurine? Surely this is packets we're talking. It de- it depended on on the figurine. So I think mm. you know, the tricky one to get was Terry Venables, who was the manager. Um, and maybe I mean, I think I think I probably would have gone to about eight or ten custard creams for a Terry Venables. Right, I think um, he'd be I mean, This was great. The custard creams didn't cost me anything. Um, mm. so it really was lucrative and, and I suppose now I you know I, I enjoy thinking on those times and as I crunch through the biscuit and enjoy the, the custard cream inner it's that sweet taste of power for me as much mm. as it is mm. power uh, manipulation. The, actual, the intrinsic um, you know flavor of the food stuff is really less important it's, it's the taste of power and authority that I love Yes, it's, it's like the neuro-linguistic programming, isn't it? You you yeah. bite that biscuit and you're, you know, like like Pavlov's custard cream eater. Immediately yeah, like consumed, with, consumed with power. Yeah, the puppy washes through you. treat kind of, you know, sim- simple-minded, just, you know, exerting power and authority over... That's to get that kind of that because I mean I haven't I haven't bought any custard creams in the UK for a while but I remember they were there are more there are none left now in Paris now that that the MSs are all closing down and, and and my friend Monica has has bought all the custard creams so there's no point trying to find any um, but they've got an advantageously priced biscuit I seem to recall certainly at the kind of the supermarket branded end of the market if you want to stray down an own brand area and so to compare that to say. A kilogram of coke, for if you're depending on where you're looking for your power and your deal inspiration, is a bargain. It's an absolute bargain. 
Well, I, I mean, I, I concur. As far as one knows, as far as one can ascertain. It's, it's really where my experience of, of, the, of the dynamic ends. I didn't go on to trade other things at other institutions through my academic progress. Um, so I no, it wasn't, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a gateway biscuit. No, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it wasn't the thin end of any wedge. No. I feel this has been a pure seven and a half minutes of education so far. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so whilst whilst you're crunching the um, the custard creams um, and thinking about what what to do with uh, the money and the power, why are hotels such a jolly thing to put the money in? Well, um, I should say we don't we have never bought a hotel. Um, so what we like to try and do, um, and so far so good, is buy um, a piece of piece of real estate, uh, an asset which isn't a hotel, but that we can see its potential. Um, And on the real estate side, we take the risk of of getting planning permission, um, change of use, and um, the risk of building the thing on time and on budget. Um, But then crucially, we also take the operational risk. So we we own the resident brand, um, we own the operating company, um, which is led by David Orr, who I know you know, uh, and I know you you uh, rate him as highly as we do. Um, so we kind of try and try and uh, add value on both sides, on the real estate side and on the operational side, and and clearly create the, the best thing for the guests that we can. Um, but I guess like, the, the the pandemic's been really interesting across all real estate asset classes, but. I think the most interesting thing about it is that it's accelerated the sense of real estate being um, an asset-backed operational business asset class. Uh, for a long time now, um, well, not forever, but for, for what feels like a long time now, um, real estate's in- increasingly been about operations. So there's been a, a rise in interest in self-storage, in um, purpose-built student accommodation, um, uh, people who own restaurant premises have have played with being uh, in the operational risk by by virtue of rent being turnover based, and all these things have kind of actually had a huge. These good things, I think, have had a huge shot of adrenaline in them through the pandemic because uh, a slightly more out of date version of real estate ownership of kind of me landlord you tenant um, has proven to be very blinkered and, and myopic and just not fit for purpose. Um, and lucky us, we'd you know got a bit more comfortable with um, operational risk in other asset classes pre-pandemic. But I think what, what it's all highlighted is that whether you like it or not, you have got operational risk. But if you embrace it and you, and you take the time to understand it and you work with people who do, you can create something that economically is incredibly re- rewarding. Daily trading business operational risk should be more rewarding than leasing the thing to someone who takes that risk on. Um, and if and if and if you can um, join up the dots with the right people involved, it can be very rewarding to create value on the real estate, but then create brand value and an EBITDA value. Um, it is 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 really good fun and um, and financially rewarding. So that's what we try and do. And presumably, you don't want loads and loads of competition to come into the market. But do you think that people investors have been deterred 
during the pandemic by the way that government can just close hotels and then that's that and you're sitting around thinking, gosh, I wonder if I should maybe start a takeaway business from my kitchen or um, or other or encourage people to work for their other sort of wholesome ways to use your space? Um, I, I think no is the short answer. Um, you know, it feels for, for all of us as human beings, it feels like um, COVID-19 has been around for a seriously long time, but actually in reality it hasn't. Um, and on the asset side, interest rates are so low um, and, and as as much as the government and central banks have kind of muddled and fuddled and flip-flopped about, um, on the operational side, the, the kind of protection for business has actually been pretty impressive, I, I would say. And the communication around has been quite poor. But, um, you know, things like um, interference with payroll, I might say interference, it sounds bad. I mean, I mean, the very positive and fast moves that governments made around furlough, VAT, um, you know, the, obviously things like C-bills, um, the, the, the kind of emergency capital that, that found its way both, both proactively and reactively, I think um, has kind of, you know, really, really left the, the, the asset owning side of, of hotel um, ownership and operations pretty unscathed in a way. Um, of course, there are exceptions, of course, to every every you know sweeping statement. But um, I don't think what's happened has put people off investing in hotels. If they were looking for immediate income, then yeah, maybe. But that's not really how that many that much of the real estate market is is not really looking for the day one income. It's looking for um, you know store of wealth. Um, um, it's looking for capital appreciation. Um, so it's been, it's been okay, I'd say. It's interesting, isn't it? Because 18 months is a, is a short time, long time, depending on which wall you're staring at. Um, and for a family office, it's a very short time, um, as you've inferred. But if you're private equity, that's like a third to possibly even a half of your hold time and you're not getting anything. Um, do you think they would be deterred or do you think that there has still been that capital appreciation so even if they've just been sitting around thinking about what they're going to do with their ballroom they can still get out of this under the same schedule and it's still happy times is it still worth investing have you seen that drop off in value well i mean private equity investors who already own assets will be licking their wounds um, because yes you know the the five year the typical five year window um, you know, will a, a significant amount of it will have been lost, but you know, private short-term returns-driven investors are, are equally as excited by opportunity as they are by their own portfolios being hit. So, what lots of people with um, clever people with you know the capacity to raise capital quickly will be doing is not just in hospitality, but in all in all asset classes that are either you know benefit from COVID um, or have been badly hit by it is raising money and, you know, hip, hip, rave if you're private equity, uh, creating opportunities to earn fees um, to then go and deploy the capital based on the circumstances. So we all, I think, on the real estate investment side of hospitality envisage a kind of, um, you know, cliff edge moment of values destroyed, 
borrowers in trouble, banks not supporting people, and you know, good quality assets becoming available at, at historic lows. Um, that is the dream. That, that would have been dreamy for some people. But I think to my point around low interest rates and, and all of the, the payroll and the kind of operational support, that, that, that dynamic hasn't emerged. It will be really interesting to see what happens because people have raised lots of money. There is lots of money waiting. Um, and, you know, we have seen very, very few things that, that um, we would call, you know, high quality assets at, at historic low cost. I believe what you are referring to is the quarter of reckoning. Quarter of reckoning. Yeah, it's not. I I am not feeling hung, drawn, and quartered um, at the moment. Um, gladly, uh, our, our our existing assets have held up unbelievably well. Bank bank constructed valuations, you know, not ones with me saying more, more, more. Just you know, real real third party stuff um, for for good assets in in the right locations. Uh, values haven't been trashed, you know, in that 12, 18 month period. Um, like the consumer professional that I am, um, I did just have to disappear and go and get a charger for my laptop. I refer you back to how my Monday's been going so far. Um, <laughs> so I do apologise if you have already talked about this. Have you had a little chat about MPS at all? Or can we swiftly no, can we, no, can we we talk about, about that? that? Okay, so we've not. I'm yeah, still a professional. Right I remain professional. Good. So um, what we'd like to know then is um, Net Promoter Score, MPS, and how how it's sort of, it's a good, how whether it's a good thing, let's not ask a leading question, um, and how it is, it features in the investment decisions that you may or may not make, please. Sure. Um, well, I think it's a good thing. So I don't think that I'm a, I don't think I'm a victim of subconscious bias by the the way the question was originally asked, but I do think it's a good thing. Um, I mean, lots of people in property, uh, I would say, um, often make the mistake of forgetting that that property is only worth what it's what it can be used for, what it's worth to someone else. You know, as a as an asset class in its own right, it's pretty meaningless. It's only what a tenant will pay because they're running their business or they're manufacturing something there or they want to live there or stay there or whatever there, that, that, it, that it's relevant. And in that context, I think net promoter scores are incredibly interesting because what they show the person looking at them is, um, is how other sectors are perceived. Um, so be it, you know, banking or, um, you know, logistics and delivery um, they, they show that kind of much more 360-degree view of something and why people rate it or hate it. Um, and that's kind of what, you know, real estate is all about, is, is understanding other people's businesses and then, and then seeing how you can be relevant to them, um, where the opportunities are, or where the pitfalls are. Um, and in hotels, you know, it's incredibly important, reputation and what people think and what people say about you. Is, is incredibly important. Uh, unlike an office landlord, conventional office landlord model where you've got a landlord and tenant, it's a very discreet bilateral relationship where if the tenant is really unhappy because the landlord is a nightmare and won't listen and you know is not performing under the terms of the lease, it's not like that that kind of uh, you know bad bad relationship, bad behavior can kind of pop and go global and you know cause you real problems. Whereas the bilateral relationship between hotel and guest um, is not really bilateral at all. It, you know, there are so many um, 
social media, you know, being the most obvious example, but, but just uh, the capacity for the guests, um, dissatisfaction to cause you a problem is, is enormous. Um, and that kind of reputational risk that exists 24 hours a day as hotel, uh, in our case, owners and operators makes not understanding net promoter scores quite, quite naive, I'd say, quite dangerous. We're not talking about bilateral agreements in France, by the way, this week. So, is this back to submarines? <laughs> Always. <laughs> Thank you, Will. That was that was useful um, and very interesting. Can I just say as well? Sorry, just I suppose thinking about the previous the previous discussion on uh, the quarter of reckoning, net promoter scores could be really interesting for investors, uh, hotel investors, because if you find an asset where or a business where the net promoter score is really low. Um, you, you have you have um, matters of fact on the one hand, the PL, um, and you have net promoter scores being something resembling a matter of fact. I mean, clearly they're, they're subjectively represented, but they are they are data. So if you know what your PL is, but you know that the the net promoter score of the target is very low or much lower than your own, you you know that you have growth capacity within the, the PL and, and therein lies an opportunity. So we would, if we were buying um, an, an operational, an existing hotel, um, we would, I suppose, proactively look for ones with low net promoter scores, be, being one of the relevant metrics within the whole assessment of the viability of, of the, uh, the transaction. Yes, it's like the, the failing F&B of, uh, of reputation. Operationally, just thinking operationally, um, it will have passed n- absolutely no one by to note that it was National Hospitality Day on Saturday. Um, did you enjoy some national hospitalitying? I did, yes. Um, on uh, Saturday, I, I had lunch um, in a place that I hadn't been to for nearly two years. Um, it's a, a place in London where I used to live and, and I now don't. Um, that's the main reason for the two-year gap rather than um, it being illegal or, or closed. Um, but, uh, yes, the, the, the amount of people, the amount of, of the team that, that worked there that hadn't changed um, and that recognised us as a family and were pleased to see us and remembered my, my eldest son's name and these kind of incredible things um, was, ex- was extremely heartwarming to be honest um it was it was a really really wonderful experience to be back in somewhere that we'd been you know 20 times a year for 10 years um and and for it to have not really changed at all including the people uh, and to have and to have that kind of genuine human connection um i felt uh, very lucky and and the fact that it was on national Hosp- hospitality day all the better how about you did you get out somewhere Yes, yes. Um, we went, um, it, this was a killer move and I'm not really, still not really sure why I did it, but at about half past four on Saturday, having been just sat in the garden, enjoying being sat in the garden, we decided to drive into Bristol town centre and we went for a little walk along the harbour side, which was delightful. Um, found a pub, had some drinks, the kids had some fish and chips. It was all tremendous until the time when we had to come home and obviously no one wanted to come home and there were tears and blah, blah, blah. Just, just from you from exactly you alone. exactly 
exactly. But it was marvellous. Um, and I happened to be, I'm just going to drop this name in there. I happened to be interviewing Kate Nichols on uh, Friday, Friday lunchtime, who, um, as we all know, is fighting the good fight, doing brilliant things. Um, and we had a little chat about lots and lots of things. Um, you know, all the communication that she's doing with government and really trying to help government understand what a hotel is, um, um, which 18 months on, you know, still seems to be quite a challenge for them. Not for her. Is, it, is this the point where we start talking about Nadine Dorries? Oh, I didn't mention that. I should have done. I well was done. going to say to her, how thrilled are you uh, that the new DCMS is um, a former kangaroo bollock eater, but I didn't. Yes. Oh, is it, is it bollock? I thought it was anal ring. <laughs> it may have been all, some, none. Anyway, though, you were saying, you were anyway, saying. Anyway, um, the, the very succinct point that we did manage to make was just how glorious it is to see people out enjoying hospitality. And it, and all this rubbish about, you know, not being part of a community. Well, that is a community, isn't it? If you walk past a pub and there's people there enjoying it, it, it was just vibrant. And that, so before the tears and the crying and having to come home <laughs> on Saturday, that's what we enjoyed. And it was very lovely too. Very long answer. Well, you don't, you don't get the lows without the highs. So there you quite, go. Quite. Catherine, did you hospitality it up? On Saturday, I did. I did hospitality it up um, at in a, in a local French restaurant, obviously of uh, of my acquaint, um, and it was very pleasant indeed. Yes, everyone was very um, very welcoming as usual, and I had the special, which was delicious. Um, and then a cafe gourmand, which is just you know a way of delivering multiple different puddings to your mouth whilst pretending that you're you're really classy. And of course, the difference between my experience and your experience uh, will it be that I had to show my pass sanitaire before entering the restaurant. And um, for anyone listening who is worried about what this might mean for hospitality organisation, the unions over here were very excited about it to start off with. Um, And then they had their little chats with Macron and then they worked out a little app which they have on their phone. And so you show your pass sanitaire on your phone, they hold their phone over it, it reads your QR code, the process takes 0.5 seconds and then you can enter the restaurant. In a safe and reassured way. Safe and reassured way. Gosh, mm, it's, it's a revelation. It? It's a revelation. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> well, anyway. I'm, I'm glad we all enjoyed some hospitality. Um, right, so trotting along, trotting along. Um, we ask all our guests the same set of questions towards the end of the podcast, um, which is very interesting in many ways. Some people say the same thing, some people not so much. Um, So we'd like to, as we draw this chat to a close um, and leave you to get on with the custard cream power, um, we wondered if we could ask you those questions, please, Will. Please do, yes. Okie dokie. So question number one, when the shutters came up and I had the jabs in my arm, the first thing I did was? Um, So for us, actually, that kind of coincided with... um... Do you remember in the spring the the sort of the beer garden era? Ah, oh, yes. So for for me for me and my family it was that time, um, and I'm you know I'm a pretty simple person, um, uh, and I do have a huge preference for for ale over lager. So so we we kind of hot stepped it with some friends over to the closest pub to where we lived that had a beer garden of a good size. Um, and and we drank real ale, the kind of the kind of ale where you need a bag of nuts on the table, that kind of stuff. Um, with our, our children running around, you know, in the in the garden, 
climbing on tables, finding trees, all that sort of good stuff. Um, and just to, to eat and drink food, um, food stuffs that were, that were not prepared and didn't need to be tidied up. Oh, it's the dishwasher. It's the savior from the dishwasher. I would, yes, we've talked about that many a times. Yeah, I mean the the, the, yeah, the, the, the the trigger, the emotional trauma trigger of the sound of a clanking dishwasher. Um, I think, yeah, all of that was alleviated on a, a spring, a spring warm afternoon, um, and we were lucky that, that that was our sort of first revisitation of the concept of hospitality. So, um, yeah. It's been a difficult pandemic for the real ale drinker. Um, I used to work with somebody who was a multiple real ale writer of the year award winner. And um, and I noted that he was having a, a trying pandemic um, because it's very hard to deliver a real ale in the home. Without the pulling of the, Without the, the, the and... storage. Yes, for hard. So you can have as many widgets as you like. But no, no, no. Exactly. He, he would understand. It sounds like you do too, Catherine. So... Uh, the fight is real. Exactly. <laughs> I've, been, I've been to the British Beer Festival. I know what it looks like, Ella. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about the best thing about this glorious sector? Um, I mean, I, I genuinely think the people involved are the best thing about it. Um, you know, there's something about a team of people delivering something together where they've all got different skills and they're different ages and they have different experiences um, and kind of bringing bring that together uh, for other people's pleasure. It's it, you know it's a bit like being involved in a theatre production. Um, it's stressful. It's hard work, um, and for people to you know volunteer themselves in a way to, to to use their time, often clearly other people's leisure time, their friends and family's leisure time. Um, I think that the, the best people for the best people, it's a true vocation. Um, and then to experience it as a consumer is you know, extremely enjoyable and, and, I, and I don't think people have enough gratitude for it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably it for me. Very good. What about um, how we make it better? The hotel sector would be significantly improved if... Is that a, is that a, a COVID-specific or a more general? It wasn't intended to be a COVID-specific. But you, you infer as you wish. Well, I, I suppose I just said about about people being grateful. I think, um, I think this, the, it would be great for hospitality, and it would be great for the people who enjoy using it if if they did think a bit more about the work that goes in. Um, and you know, um, COVID or not, I, I've I've witnessed, um, and it's kind of. Sadly, almost worse. Um, the higher the price point, the worse the the guest's behaviour can be. Um, but the sense of entitlement that that you know the um, that the the transaction of paying for something can create with, within some people is um, a, a, sometimes a bit of a sad glimpse into humanity. Um, I think if people were kinder, um, were more aware of of the work, how difficult it is, how long the hours are, how, how actually, you know, not so great the, the comp can be for people. Um, and they sort of thought a bit more about um, smiling back, you know, and um, being kind of, you know, involved sort of as, as part of the same team rather than as, as a demanding person who, um, you know, is paying money, therefore they can do what they like. 
uh, kind of experience, then it would it would make the people providing the hospitality happier, and then it would become a kind of circular, wonderful experience of the happier you are and, and the more grateful you are, then surprise, surprise, the happier I will be too. And then, um, you know, then more people would be involved in hospitality. They would they would not feel like it wasn't for them because they didn't like being shouted at or, or frowned at. Um, it, it's, it's hard because that's kind of, interestingly, I think it's, it's a particularly British thing to not really understand hospitality. And it's kind of interesting that, that not, you know, as a, I don't know the, the exact percentages, but I feel like um, working in hospitality in other parts of Northern Europe uh, is, is, is way more vocational than it would be for young British people. And respected. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we, we've sort of lost something there. Yeah, I have an entire theory about this, which I think is all all to do with food. I think it comes back to food and families sitting around a table and enjoying food. And then you extrapolate, I'll do it quickly, but you extrapolate that out to food being something to be enjoyed. um, And then therefore serving it is something to be um, enjoyed and respected. And if you don't have the first bit, you're never going to get to the end bit. And that's when you end up with people clicking fingers and speaking awfully to someone who just wants to bring them a bag of chips. Really? In a oh, lovely I like way. it. I like it. It's a good theory. It's my theory. Um, theory. But yes, I, so I completely agree. Okay, the penultimate question, what the industry needs now is? Well, now being definitely off the back of COVID, I think, you know, probably not a particularly groundbreaking opinion, but I think we need stability and clarity from the government um, to give people confidence um, to on the on the operational side to invest in their businesses and grow them and then on the consumer side to kind of make a plan and stick to it um you know particularly hotels rather than on the food and beverage side uh, i i and i speak for myself as well as as lots of friends and you know lots of people anecdotally i think people are kind of slightly thinking it's who knows it's too it's too hard to make a plan that we know might change um to, to kind of put money on deposit that you you know a little bit of your brain thinks you might never get back um, and it's all kind of that that indecision and that lack of confidence really flows from the government's lack of clarity and, and consistency um, and I think you know for many many reasons if if the messaging could be clearer better um, to, to to give the context for people to to kind of plan again and spend money in in ways which would um, you know allow people to to grow their businesses and to plan for the future that would be of of huge relief to everyone involved. Absolutely, we're something of a fan of clear messaging here, so um, couldn't agree more. Seamless, Emily. Thanks so much. <laughs> um, final question: I'd like to think we've learned from this. Uh, me too. Um, <laughs> What 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 have we learned? Um, I suppose being a bit sort of non-analytical and and not thinking about numbers and you know percentages. I think as as people we've learned that that fear isn't as powerful as hope. Um, you know, all all of all of the technology in the world that's that's reporting the data and showing the impact of of COVID. Um, it kind of misses the, the 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 value of a shared experience um, and geographically shared, it, and it, and it kind of 
I think it misses what people would like to do and, and what they're hoping to do again. Um, you know, there's this kind of catch-all phrase of pent-up demand has been sort of, you know, I heard, I've heard that almost as much in 2021 as I heard unprecedented in 2020. Um, but it, 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 it is, does seem to be very real. We see that in our, in our own bookings and, uh, you know, the rates, the occupancy. Um, I think people are really hoping to enjoy hospitality. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean going out. That could mean hosting friends and family. But just the general theme of what we love to do with the people we love and the opportunities it creates in people's personal lives and their, in their business. Um, you know, that's what we all want and kind of actually need. Um, and I think for a while, Project Fear, as it was called, it kind of looked to ride roughshod over that a bit. Um, and actually the, the, the people's reaction to getting back out and, and not being afraid, uh, I think it's been really interesting. Um, we, we, you know, we're not actually that good at being told what to do. We, we, we really like what we like. Um, and I don't think those, those kind of feelings of uh, what are important to people and how people want to spend their money will be changed in any, any kind of permanent way, which is sort of like my point about 18 months. It's, it's not that long. Our, our collective memory, um, our, our collective muscle memory still wants to walk to the pub. Oh, absolutely. I think I could probably do it blindfold still. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that was brilliant. Thank you. Very uh, insightful. I feel like we all know what we're going to have for our 11 o'clock biscuit today. Um, salivating at the thought of a custard cream. I don't know if I've got any, but we'll solve that problem. But many, many thanks for your time. Um, Catherine, lovely to see you. Always lovely to see you. Thank you very much, Will. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you everyone for listening. Please review and subscribe and do all the things you need to do on Spotify and the other one, Apple Podcasts. So professional. Um, and we look forward to um, you joining us again next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. So that concludes our thoughts for this week. Thank you to everyone involved in creating this episode and providing something for your ears whilst walking the dog, washing the cat, chopping the veg, or however else you pass the time while podcasting. Please do review and subscribe if you get your ear entertainment via Apple, or follow new tricks if your ear delight comes from Spotify. These things make a difference, apparently. Until next time.